From Square Two, this is What's Wrong With Revenue. I'm Mike Lieberman, CEO at Square Two, and along with my longtime friend, Eric Kalis, and co-founder at Square Two and six-time entrepreneur, Eric and I will answer the question CEOs have every single day, what's wrong with revenue? You can be part of the Livecast show where we'll answer your questions every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Eastern, or catch the show on demand on YouTube and on all your favorite podcast networks. Also check out all our audio and video content on Square2 Plus at the square2marketing.com website. Enjoy the show. Hey everybody, Mike Lieberman. Welcome to season two, episode five of What's Wrong With Revenue. Today we're gonna to talk about uh, and take a deep dive into the tactics necessary for a revenue generation system. Eric, how you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. Good, how was your pickleball this morning? Had an ATP around the post. Nice, nice, nice. That's like a hole in one, I think, right? For me it is. Very cool. Awesome. All right. So let's get the uh, housekeeping out of the way for those who follow the show. You know, you can check it out on YouTube. Square Two Marketing Channel posts all our What's Wrong With Revenue shows on YouTube. We actually had a nice shout out uh, last week from our show. So leave us comments. I check them out. You can like us. You can subscribe to the show right there on our YouTube channel and be a part of the show that way. The show is also posted in its uh, video format to Square2 Plus, our free streaming service at square2marketing.com backslash square2plus. All the shows are posted Thursday morning, just like the streaming services. The show has its own website called What's Wrong With Revenue. You can find it at the footer of the square2.com website. And you can subscribe to the show there. We will email you the show right to your inbox in its video format. We'll also let you know about upcoming shows. And on that page, you can submit questions. We do have a couple of questions we're gonna to handle today. And if you're into audio formats, like a lot of us are, podcasts and such, the show is converted into a podcast and available on all your favorite podcast platforms, Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, and more. Subscribe to the show, download the show, and you can listen to it at your leisure. So like I said, today's a big show for us. We're going to talk about tactics associated with revenue generation. And when I say it's a big show, I mean there are so many tactics available to people today when it comes to revenue. It's almost There's almost too many tactics. And we all know that in order to generate leads and grow your business and drive revenue, you need to execute the right set of tactics to generate leads, sales opportunities, and um, new customers. But with hundreds of options, it's hard to know exactly what to do and when to do it. You got email marketing, organic search, paid social ads, video, your website. There's uh, you know account-based marketing you can do. There's all kinds of tools you can use. There's literally an unlimited amount of tactics you can execute. And I think... One of the issues that we see frequently that Eric and I have talked about and described as random acts of marketing is a symptom of just people being overwhelmed with the amount of tactics at their disposal. And today I'm going to hope that in our episode, we can give a little bit of insight into how to figure out what tactics to use, when to use them, how to diagnose which tactics are going to be right for you, maybe how to test them, how to measure them even how to continue to add tactics to your portfolio. There's nothing that says you have to execute all the tactics all at once. Sometimes it's better to start with one or two, get those down, 
and then add to that over time. So today we're going to talk about how to create a compre comprehensive list of potential marketing tactics. And by the way, I want to talk about sales tactics as well, because there are things that we can do in the sales side of the business to grow revenue, how to prioritize the tactics, how to know which ones are the right for you and your uh, skills or expertise inside your company, how to plan, measure, and optimize the tactics over time, and also how to decide whether the tactics are working, whether to stop them or not continue them, or maybe uh, double down and try to make them better. So it's a big show today, a lot to cover. Eric, I always like to give you the opportunity to kick us off. So uh, where do you want to take us today? I would like to relay a conversation I had with a prospective client earlier this week. They sell uh, e uh, via e-commerce at their website. Let's just call it hobbyist equipment. And they sell to... I'm sorry, what, what's hobbyist equipment? Like, like stuff uh, to Exacto knives and glue and stuff like that? No, I mean, this is a specific hobby, and I certainly don't want to, uh, you know, talk about any specific client, but it would be a place where you go to get materials for this specific hobby. Okay. And they sell via e-commerce. The average engagement size is less than $100 uh, per ticket. Um, so uh, it's uh, small, uh, many, many small purchases. So they were sharing some of their data. And they said, well, we get, let's say, 20,000 people a month to our website, and we have a 4% conversion rate. So I said, well, how are you defining conversion rate? And they said, well, what do you mean? There's only one conversion rate. People buy stuff. So I said, okay, let's talk about that a little bit. And when we looked at their website, it was specifically focused on anybody who was ready to buy today. And that sort of lent into a tactical conversation about other building blocks that they could add to their strategy that will enable more revenue. So for example, they didn't have any content, tips and tricks about this specific hobby. Let's put some content up there, a video, a white paper, a tip sheet, an infographic, a recorded uh, webinar perhaps talking about this hobby. And they said, well, then people won't buy stuff. I said, well, you're only capturing the 10 to 15% of people that come to that website that are ready to buy today. Other folks that are interested in this specific hobby might be looking for information. Maybe they want to get started. Maybe they went to another vendor and they didn't have a great experience and they're looking to upgrade that. And Mike, it was like a giant light bulb went off. Because when we talked about downloading a white paper, trading for information, nurturing those people, taking them on the buyer's journey, answering those questions, the prospective client's head was exploding because they were like, wow, what a missed opportunity. And not because they um, you know, didn't want to do it. They just weren't aware that having a good, strong foundation, or in other words, the tactics necessary to attack all people at all stages of the buyer's journey was critical. And that was a real um, sad thing for me, but also a huge opportunity that next year when they added these things, they'll grow even quick, more quickly. They'll have a bigger database. They'll have a lot more people they could talk to, so forth and so on. So that's just sharing a little experience I had uh, uh, educating folks on the power of tactics. It's a great story too. And I remember um, I, I read this a while ago. Uh, you know, Graco manufactures a lot of baby products like um specifically strollers and this the the, the example i'm going to give you was they were they were trying to um drive more stroller purchases and they were publishing content about birthday tips for you know little kids kids that would be in the strollers and when you think about it how often do you buy a stroller 
once, maybe twice when, when your kid outgrows the first one you buy, but you're looking for birthday tips every single year. And I think that's kind of a similar point is when the company can publish information that has more relevance than maybe the purchase does, then you have an opportunity to stay in touch with your prospects and get a little closer to them and, and introduce them to different things that you might want them to know about your business and potentially buy. I'm sure this uh, hobby products company is having a similar situation. There's going to be many, many things that they can talk to them about besides just the specific uh, tools and supplies that they offer on their website. So with that in mind, why don't we talk a little bit about what some of the tactics might be that our audience should be considering? And like, we can certainly, you know, breeze by some of the obvious ones, right? Like the website and the website's ability to tell your story, engage and, and, and bring a visitor into your orbit, uh, share information with them, get them feeling comfortable about your business. I was having a, a conversation with a, a kind of a current client. I would consider them and they, their website is not, uh, their current website is not um, what I would call like, uh, I guess I'm going to use the word respectable, but it's just, it's just, it's, it's sketchy. Right. And the, 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 the client even said to me, he goes, you know, people keep telling me my, my website doesn't make them feel comfortable. And he was asking uh, me specifically, you know, is that something you hear a lot? And we were talking to him. Yeah. Like uh, people will judge your company on your website, literally in seconds, if they land on your website and they don't feel safe or they feel like there's something wrong with it, or they don't feel like it's current, or they don't feel like it's uh, designed with their experience in mind, they're gone. So, you know, we can, Talk about the website as a tactic, but it might be the most important tactic you're executing. It is your 24 hour, seven days a week salesperson. It is your store that never closes. You know, it really represents your business in so many different ways. And I still think there are a lot of companies who underestimate the power of their website. They still think it's an online brochure. They still think it doesn't have to really be as current or as well-designed or as well-articulated as maybe it needs to be. Oh, none of our competitors have great websites, so ours is fine. And, you know, that would be a pretty big mistake uh, as we start to line up these set of tactics that are going to be critical for generating leads and uh, driving business. Mike, I love you like my brother, but I'm going to push back. I'm not saying that websites aren't important, but you know what the first step is? Understanding that prospective client and giving them what they need. So I'll give you an example. A pizza shop might not need a website because how do people research pizza shops? They go on Yelp, they go on Google reviews, they might have a Facebook page. So I think that the first step is really going back to the strategy that we talked about last week and putting yourself in the buyer's shoes and saying, well, how are they getting information? So of course, the website for 99% of companies is gonna be the linchpin or the keystone to their entire marketing program. But I don't want to gloss over the fact that you can't jump right into the website tactic. You have to say, well, what do our what do our target uh, buyers want? I mean, I I don't remember the last time I went to a, a restaurant website. And a great example would be because of COVID, you now sit down in a restaurant, you snap a QR code, they take you to some uh, online menu, right? And like that's all people might need. So let's not skip over the strategic part that we went deep in last week. To say, well, what do people need now? 99%, like I said earlier, are going to need a killer website. So I do agree with you, but sometimes it just might not be appropriate fit for what happen happens in the buyer's journey. Yeah. 
I go to every restaurant's website every single time. And I don't really trust Yelp or any of those review services. I got to see a nice website. I got to see pictures of great food. I got to see the place I'm going to go to. And the website has to be good. So I know what you're saying. Maybe like a, you know, urban pizza shop with two chairs and some ovens doesn't need a, a, a restaurant. But, you know, I got to be comfortable doing business with this company, no matter what business they're in. And I want to look at their website. Now, you're 100% right. And we have multiple shows on strategy. We've covered that ad nauseum, I feel like. But you're 100% right. You got to know who your prospects are. You got to know what their issues are. You got to know how to talk to them. But then that has to come out in a in a well-executed, articulated, and well-designed website. Sure. So since we're talking also, about like, tactics. You don't need like a, a, you don't need a video and a white paper to learn what pizza is. You know what I'm saying? That is sure. That is correct. Right. right. But back to the hobby example, there are some nuances to this hobby. Yes. A lot of rich content at a great website is critical. Yeah. Yep. And if we're going to just transition to the content piece of it, I think that is also by far one of the most under- utilized set of tactics that we see. I mean, Eric, how many websites have we seen that even look good, but there's just no content on the website. It's just an online brochure. So yeah, the answer is most to that, right? right? Because uh, once again, if you stand in the shoes of your prospective buyer and you map out the buyer's journey, they typically have lots of questions in the beginning and the middle of the journey that need to be answered through content. At the end of the journey, if a salesperson is getting involved, they can get their content that way. But in the beginning, when I'm doing research, content is critical. I think a lot of people think that the beauty of a website will supersede the meat of the issue, which is someone wants to buy, but they have challenges, questions, worries, concerns, and that's the perfect opportunity to use content to educate them and make them feel that you're the obvious choice to do business with. Yeah, if you if you think about the way we used to buy, and again, like we're talking mostly B2B because that's usually who we work with, but you know, back in the day, if you wanted to buy something from another company that sold B2B services, you picked up the phone and you called the sales department and you talked to a salesperson from the very beginning. There was really no way to get information. And I think that illustrates that buyers need information. Today, they don't want to talk to a salesperson. They want that information to be readily available to them so they can get it all on their own. So, you know, any of the information that historically was provided by sales reps now is provided by websites and by the marketing tactics we're going to talk about today. So, you know, if you're thinking about what content do we need to produce to engage visitors, a great way to think about it is, you know, what kinds of questions did our sales reps answer? What kind of questions do our sales reps still answer? What kind of questions do our prospects ask us to get comfortable with us as a business, with our products and services? All those things need to be answered um, with content on your website. If you want to stick with the hobbyist, you know, whatever supplies they were providing, there's choices around those supplies, right? Like, you know, if you are selling, you know, super glue for, for model making, like there's tons of different kinds of super glue and tons of different kinds of tips and tons, tons of different kinds of drying times and tons of different kinds of applications. And, you know, why do you think YouTube is such a popular search engine? Because people are going there to learn things and your website has to provide a similar service. It has to have the content that teaches and educates and advises and guides your prospects so they get comfortable with your business. And again, sticking to the theme here, there's so many ways to deliver that. Yes, there's like printed or, you know, like written copy that you design and it looks good like an ebook or a white paper. 
and there's checklists and, and but there's now there's videos and there's different kinds of videos. There's videos like what we're doing now, these podcasts that are long form. There's short form videos that can quickly and easily help someone figure something out. There are quizzes and assessments that you could put on your website to help people assess their issues and figure out uh, uh, how they rank compared to other people. There, there's literally an unlimited amount of content options, uh, but this has to be a big part of your tactical go-to-market also when it comes to marketing. And I wanted to make sure that we don't just talk about marketing in this episode, but we talk about sales too. All that content that you're creating, all those questions that you're answering, that content is equally effective in the sales process. So, you know, it's not like you're creating something that's only going to live on your website and it's only going to be on this one page and you're only going to use it when someone asks for it. There's an opportunity to use this content and these content tactics in so many places, customer service also. So think, try to think about what we're talking about, this particular tactic in a very wide array of applications. Yeah, you know, it's a great point, Mike. I was in a weekly revenue team meeting with one of our clients this week. And the salesperson's uh, the salesperson was bemoaning that prospective clients don't know everything that this company sells. So the marketing team on the weekly revenue team meeting said, "Well, wait a minute. Let's create some content for you in the sales process that will educate them on the four basic areas that we sell, even before you have the first call." So it was a really beautiful example of marketing supporting sales to drive revenue by solving a problem of educating them with, I um, assume it's going to be a video, that video sent before the meeting where they're like, hey, here are the four areas where we really help people, blah, 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 your, uh, enjoy your upcoming sales meeting. And that was just a little bit of an aid using content to the sales team to perhaps sell more, have a bigger engagement, you know, bigger first uh, uh, purchase, whatever the goal might be there. But that's a like sales content thing as opposed to a marketing content thing. But you're right. It has to be throughout the entire buyer's journey. Right. That actually is a really interesting segue around this. We, we have talked about this before, and it's very related to the tactic conversation, the experience. Mm -hmm. Right. We've mentioned this before. So many times people tell us, well, I picked square two because you guys really gave me a great experience when you were getting to know me before I, you know, before we even started to engage, I just really enjoyed the, the sales process and the experience you built for us. You just described a great example of how that experience could be upgraded for that company to a point where maybe they would win the deal because the sales experience was so much better than the competition. It's not about the products. It's not about the company. It's not about the pricing or the terms, like all these things that people think are really what people are using to make their selection. No, it was about the sales team understanding that these people needed a little more help and guidance and created some tools to, to make that experience just that much more helpful. Uh, that emotional connection needs to be a thread across all the tactics we're talking about, the website, the content, you know, we're talking about email in a second. You know, if you keep email, and we all have seen these horrible emails, if you keep emailing someone, are you ready to buy? Are you ready to buy? Can we get started? Are you ready to buy? Can I send you a contract? Like, do, can I have five minutes? Like, no one's engaging with that. That's not a positive experience. That's a tactic deployed in an in, in, ineffective way. But if that email tactic was designed to be more educational and to be more helpful and to be more guidant, you would have a completely different outcome from the same exact tactic. Yeah, I mean, that same follow-up could be a template, which is part of tactics, right? That could be like, 
hey, great uh, final meeting. We're looking forward to working with you. Based upon all of our conversations, I've painted a picture of what your company might look like a year from now if you uh, engaged. You'll have many more customers and happy employees and whatever. That is such a different approach to, uh, can, we, can we send you a contract? Can we send you a contract? Because the response sure. to that, if done appropriately, would be, I want that vision. Let's get started today. And then the paperwork yep. is just secondary. So once again, you know, very few people will be able to stand in their prospect shoes and be able to develop the tactical things that are needed to support that amazing journey. Yeah, that's such a good point. Um, let's talk about a couple other tactics that maybe might be a little less obvious, like obviously websites and content and email are pretty video are pretty obvious. Let's talk about paid search. So, you know, obviously you, you're you're uh, selecting keywords, you're building a, a a search campaign for Google that when people put in terms besides the organic rankings, people are paying to be presented to people searching for specific terms. You know, I've, I've read some things uh, lately where depending on your business, paid search might actually not be the right tactic for you. How do you feel about that, Eric? Could you see a situation where maybe paid search is not a tactic that someone would want to include in their portfolio? Yes, I do. And it goes back to strategy again. How is my persona looking for this specific product or service? And I have a wonderful example. Got a client, they have multiple uh, offices for therapy, all different kinds of therapy, right? Um, I just got divorced, uh, postpartum, overeating, any any discipline that would require a therapeutic um, uh, uh, program. So in conversation with them about what is the behavior of their patients before they become patients, they said literally 90% of them come through a referral. Now the referral... Uh, it has a lot of different things. Sometimes they come referred by a primary care physician. Sometimes they come like the postpartum example through an OBGYN doctor who says, look, you're, you're suffering from a little postpartum depression. Here's a practice. But on the other side, the patients that are coming directly without a doctor referral are coming because they've asked family and friends, do you know a good therapist? So I was a little surprised that they put the number at 90%. I thought maybe it would be 50 or 60, but they were uh, uh, tracking it in a, a, a bit of a crude way, but they were at least tracking it. So we started to talk about some of the campaigns that might be implemented or, or deployed in order to drive more patients. And SEO just didn't come up. I, I, I pressed, well, aren't people searching online therapy for overeating, therapy for sleep disorder, therapy for anxiety? And they said, I guess some people are searching, but not the ones that we attract. So in that case, I guess the initial work to search engine optimize the website would be valuable at some level, but active campaigns or paid campaigns to drive that kind of internet research might fall short simply by understanding the way that the patients find this practice. So that's a simple example. Now, there's always going to be an SEO component to everybody's marketing because you got to, you can't be invisible on the internet, but that doesn't mean you have to lean in and invest more money. If it's not a tactic, that's going to have the highest return on investment. My implication there is if they leaned into referral marketing, obviously they already have a head of steam. They'll just maximize their investment in that. Yeah, it's a real, it's a really good example. And there's a relatively easy way to decide if Google search is something that you should be putting money into as a tactic or not. And that's really just to see how many people are searching for your particular search terms. And if you have a geographic component to your business in your particular geography, um, 
if the numbers are, you know, modest to, to low, then yeah, Eric is right. And I would completely agree. You still want to have a website that can be found um, if someone is searching for those particular terms, but I don't think you necessarily need to include paid search in your list of tactics. And th the same would go for paid social too. Uh, paid social today is hugely popular. Um, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, um, the paid social plat the, the social platforms are making a ton of money on pay on paid advertising. And again, I think you have to ask yourself a question again, back to Eric's very first point and uh, the multiple previous shows are my prospects on these platforms. Now, LinkedIn, you know, again, if we're talking about B2B, it's, it's probable your prospects are on LinkedIn at some point. Um, it might not be probable that they're noticing the ads. Like, you know, I'm a, a, I guess I would call myself a light LinkedIn user. Um, I'm not on it every day, you know. So if you're average, if you're trying to reach me on an advertisement, like you'd really have to get lucky that I happen to be on it and happen to pay attention to the ads. Um, other people are on it more frequently and and more aggressively and posting to it more uh, frequently and using it more as an as a a vehicle to to get their message out and and therefore they may be well, they may be easier to target. Um, uh, I do think, like, again, if you're it, it, back to Eric's uh, B2C hobbyist uh, example, you know, I think it's probably more likely that those targeted people are going to be on some of those those uh, more visually oriented social platforms like Pinterest, maybe, because a lot of hobbyists tend to like to post the things that they're working on there and engage with other people who have similar hobbies. Um, so, again, you have to really understand the behaviors of your prospects is where the persona work is really important. One of the questions we ask in our persona work is where do your prospects get their information digitally, uh, which not only is is what platforms, but what other websites are they spending their time on too? Like there could be a, a website dedicated to this particular hobby that is not a social platform, but is a website where people go to congregate to talk about this particular hobby. Uh, there are a lot of those kinds of things. Facebook has a has been running a very big push on their groups. So there's probably a number of groups uh, dedicated to this particular hobby. I'm actually in um, a, a Facebook group, which I don't go to very frequently, but for the kind of car I drive, just because I'm interested sometimes in the cool like accessories and things that people post in there. Um, so again, you can use that as a targeting mechanism if you're going to uh, consider social media advertising as well. I will say one of the advantages of the social platforms is the targeting. You can get very, 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 very narrow and very, very, very specific on who you want your ads to be put in front of. And that means you have an opportunity to drive some very efficient advertising. So, you know, when we talk about, you know, Instagram ads, we're not in any way suggesting you would advertise to everybody on Instagram. You would have to narrow that profile down and uh, uh, focus those ads on only those people that fit your profile. And the profiling piece of those uh, tools are very powerful. In fact, you can even potentially take your customer list and upload it to most of the platforms and drive a lookalike marketing campaign where you would be only advertising to the people that look exactly like your customer. So again, there's some powerful opportunities there that should probably be considered if it aligns with your strategy. Anything you want to add, Eric? No, I, once again, aligns with your strategy is the key. Yeah. 
Um, what other tactics do you think might be worth talking about? Uh, maybe we can get into some of the more obscure ones. Do you have any ideas in that area? Well, it's not so obscure, but it's something that a lot of people pass over or discount, and that's nurturing, right? Nobody, let's say I'm selling something for 50, 100,000, right? Nobody wakes up in the morning and they go, I'm going to spend $50,000 this afternoon on a piece of software, right? There's a sales process, a long sales cycle to get all the information to make sure you're making the correct decision. That is a huge opportunity from a foundational tactic perspective to put together a nurture campaign. So let's say that your typical sales cycle is 30 days. Well, if we have 30 days, I might put together a nurture for three weeks, right? A little shorter than the sales cycle, one to try to shorten it, two to make sure we get it all in in the typical, the whole nurture and in the typical sales cycle. And then what's happening is call it five emails over three weeks with key pieces of content, kind of estimating where they are in the buyer's journey and then giving them that content proactively to establish the fact that well, you're the obvious choice to do business with. So I'll take you through the quick example of the hobbyist that we talked about. Instead of just selling the equipment, hey, let's give them uh, nine mistakes that most people make in this hobby. Oh, I'd like to know what the nine mistakes are. I give my email address, drops it in the database, triggers the nurture. And now five emails over the next two weeks, kind of like showing different things, some videos, some, uh, you know, uh, photography, uh, perhaps some uh, uh, like comparison to, the com uh, comparison to the competitors. And all that's automatically working in the background so that you're not doing anything um, except for building that relationship, albeit through, uh, you know, automated uh, nurturing. Now, let's say that you can convert 1% of those nurture peoples, the people that didn't buy right away at, I believe the number was 20,000, 1% would be 200. That's 200 people being converted just because you put a tactic into place that you didn't have before. It's the same thing with like integration of old school and new school stuff, right? If you have a print ad in your conferences brochure, add a link to your website with a piece of content that's followed up by a nurture. If the initial Im implication was that I'm going to get five new customers from advertising in this conference uh, uh, brochure, now I'm getting five people and I get 200 more people in my database that I could squeeze out of them five more customers. So a lot of this is way cheaper than doing advertising, but putting the right foundation in place from a nurturing perspective could squeeze more out of your existing activities. Yeah, it's such a good point. And uh, I add a color to the nurture tactic. There's a couple of things you could do. A, we like to try to proactively like move people through their buyer journey with the nurture, or at the very least, get them to signal us where they are in the buyer journey with the nurture. So if you stage your offers and they get progressively deeper into the buyer journey while you're nurturing them, any kind of trigger on a click on that nurture will give you a signal that someone is actually moving through their buyer journey. And then you can uh, adjust your nurture or even design your sales process outreach around that. So for instance, um, you know, we may start with the nurture introducing the idea like, oh, you can also subscribe to our blog, something that we want to get them to subscribe to because by moving them out of the nurture and into the blog subscription, we now get to talk to them every time we blog as opposed to just the times we're sending them this nurture, which in Eric's example is five times over, you know, three weeks. Uh, we'll be talking to them, you know, almost 10 times more frequently if we can get them to subscribe to the blog. We may have some kind of event coming up that we want to invite them to. And again, if they accept the invitation, that signals that they're deeper in their buyer journey because they're willing to put more time into attending an event with us. Again, like sales could potentially follow up on that response to see, you know, if they have anything pressing that they need attended to prior to them coming to the event. 
And then eventually we like to end the nurture with an actual sales opportunity, buy something or schedule a meeting to talk about your particular uh, pr project or program. If after those nurtures have run their course and there's been no contact, I think there's a pretty good chance that they're not ready to, to move forward at this point, which is fine. The nurture can end. If your nurture run well, they've engaged and subscribed in some other way anyway, so you're still going to talk to them and, and you're, you're, you're off you go. You, you also can set your nurture up, and we're going to talk about technology in a future show, but your nurture can end if they take certain actions. So if they do schedule that meeting with you and you're only two out of the five nurtures, well, you can have the technology turn off those nurtures so you don't have these weird kind of emails following up after you've already got them to, to take the big action that you're looking them to take, which is scheduled some time with sales. So there's a lot of way to orchestrate those that, that particular tactic so that it runs very efficiently and uh, effectively. Um, couple of other tactics we could talk about. I mentioned it briefly, like, you know, webinars and events are still good. Um, you know, if you're, if, if you are a B2B business and you do like to get FaceTime with people, I would recommend a webinar, uh, or some kind of online program that runs fairly regularly. And it doesn't have to be your traditional 45 minute presentation with questions. You can do office hours where people sign up to answer questions. You can do, um, uh, ask me anything sessions with experts. You can have a panel. Like there's so many things you could do with an online event that can get people to uh, uh, show you their intent by the amount of commitment they're putting towards to, to sign up and, and uh, participate in an event like that. You can record it and publish those as on demand. You can grab snippets from it and use those in social. Uh, you can grab snippets from that and use that in the sales process to help the sales reps tell their story as well. So uh, the tactics around content are intricate and very deeply connected today. Uh, the way we create content is different, and you really want to look for multi-platform applications for all your different types of content. Um, Eric, I was thinking as we were getting ready for the show, and since we're talking about tactics, maybe we could talk a little bit about the 10-10-10 concept, because that kind of collects a couple different tactics, and it aligns the sales team. Why don't you talk to the audience a little bit about that? And and maybe I could give you just an overlay in terms of this is has always been a, a uh, flavor of account-based marketing that we run for clients. We just happen to have this, uh, you know, fancy name for it. Yeah. So it's really a beautiful blend of strategy, tactics, and campaigns. So let's talk about it. 10, 10, 10 is for companies that want to have a very precise outreach to get a very specific set of prospective clients. Back to our hobbyist example, millions of people do this hobby. But if I'm selling a specific sign of software to hospitals, maybe only the CIO of the top 500 hospitals in the United States are who I want to speak with. So first you have to decide really wide or really narrow. Think shotgun, spraying, shot, or a very precise rifle shooting a bullet at a, a bullseye. So if you decide that you're the latter, then a 10-10-10 is a great way to add structure to your outreach. Now, the first thing you have to do is strategically understand what pains and problems the prospect has. So I'll give you a real life example. We have a client, they do managed service providing, like they'll manage all your computers for your company. And they do it specifically for companies that have Apple products, right? Because there's a lot of people that do PCs, but Apple is much fewer. 
So they decided they wanted to reach out to the um, chief operating officers of all of the of America's largest ad agencies, because ad agencies typically use Apple products, not PCs. So they said, all right, well, what's the biggest problem? Well, the biggest problem is there's a lot of companies that will manage your PCs, but just a few companies that will actually specialize in your Apple or Mac network. So they went down that road of, uh, you know, that it's hard to find a really good partner when it comes to managing that. So we put together a messaging package that says, if managing your Mac network is a challenge, we should talk. Now we put that into a 10-10-10 program. A 10-10-10 program is 10 phone calls, 10 packages, and then 10 follow-up calls. So we'll start with the package. We, we got a brown paper, a brown cardboard box, very nondiscreet. And in there, we filled it with peanuts. And then in the box with the peanuts, there was a handwritten note that said, if managing your Mac network is driving you nuts, we should talk. And then we put in a little one-pager about the company, and that's it. On Monday afternoon, each salesperson sent out 10 of these packages to 10 people on the list of the 500 they wanted to attack. They UPS them on Monday. The last thing the sales team did that Monday night is to leave a voicemail for the target. Hi, this is Eric. I'm calling from MSP Incorporated. Just wanted to let you know that I sent you a box in UPS. It'll be arriving on Wednesday and I'll follow up after. So all we want them to know is that something was shipped to them, the name of the company, and there'll be some follow-up. That's it. Now the box arrives on Tuesday or Wednesday. Now think about it. The open rate for a box being sent to a prospect is 100% because you don't come back from lunch and there's a box on your desk and you just throw it away without opening it. You must open the box. Now you have an interesting message. You have some uh, creativity with the peanuts and so forth. And that probably makes a little bit of buzz around the office. Like, oh, that's interesting. They share the peanuts as a snack, whatever. Now, the last, so that's 10 phone calls already on Monday night, 10 packages arrive on Wednesday. On Thursday, the sales team carves out an hour of time to follow up with those 10 people that they attack. And that call is something like this. Hi, this is Eric. I'm calling from MSP Incorporated. I'm the guy that sent you the box of peanuts. I was wondering if we could talk about managing your network. Now, at the end of the day, it's still a cold outreach, which means nine out of 10 people are going to say no or don't have the need or just are rude. But that's okay if they get one person who has pain around managing their network that's uh, once a week, that's 52 sales conversations a year, we're already cooking. But from a tactical perspective, we're prepared with the dropdowns. Oh, you don't want to talk about your network? No problem. We have a fabulous webinar coming up three weeks from Thursday. May I register you? So now we're getting email addresses and we're adding them to the database and filling up our webinars. Oh, you don't want to attend our webinar? No problem. Just give me your email address and I'll send you our new white paper, Six Mistakes to Avoid When Managing Your Mac Network. So what happened was by preparing all those tactics in advance and then being able to reach out with a system, we're getting one sales meeting a week, we're getting two webinar registrations, and we're getting three emails every week times five salespeople, and now you start to get some momentum. But if you don't have the strategy, understanding what the pains are, and you don't have the tactics, we need a good box and peanuts and a little printed note, and the uh, system, hey, we're going to call on Monday night and follow up and so forth. Now that campaign wouldn't be effective unless you kind of went through all those steps. So that's a wonderful example of the integration of strategy, tactics, and campaign all in one little bundle. Sorry, Mike, for the long answer to your very short question. No, that's that's great. And I think also that that specific example deals with a lot of challenges businesses are facing today. For instance, like, you know, 
what do I do with this list I bought, right? Like a lot of companies thought they bought a list and they're going to just blanket market all these people and, you know, they're running into trouble with that. Well, now you take that list and you roll it out as part of your 10-10-10 program and you have people calling and making personal contacts and getting approval to email them things and you're building your list in exactly 100% compliant way. So I think there's a lot of good advice in that very practical example uh, on, on how to uh, connect some of these tactics and execute them effectively. So um, the last section of the show here, uh, I wanna uh, dig into some different kinds of tactical related issues. Like how do we prioritize the tactics? Because one of the things I find Eric is most of uh, the companies we work with they have really big eyes when it comes to all the things they wanna do and, and maybe not is not the same sized budget or the same sized ability to execute from a resource perspective. So, you know, I might want to do a podcast. I might want to do 20 videos. I might want to do email marketing. I might want to do nurtures. I might want to do the 1010 program. How would you recommend a, a company who's looking at a long list of marketing tactics, prioritize those tactics down to the ones that they can be successful with? Yeah, so there's really a two-part answer to this question. The first thing is you got to get all of these issues out on the table, right? Because we want to do a million things and we have 19 different things that we want to do. You got to get them all out and we have to list them. So that's pretty straightforward. That list, or I should say that running list is called the parking lot, right? Everything we're talking about is on the parking lot. And every single week, we're reviewing the parking lot in our weekly revenue team meeting, which we talked about on the first episode of this season, right? So now I have this running list. And when I get to the issues section of my re weekly revenue team meeting, now I have to prioritize those, right? So let's say to use your example, Mike, we really want to do a podcast, but we don't have nurturing set up on our website. Which should we attack first? Uh, uh, listeners note, if you have an unlimited marketing budget, you do not have to listen to this segment because you could just throw money at the problem. But for the 99.9% .9 of the listeners who have a limited marketing budget, you got to prioritize because we don't have the budget to do everything. So now we talk as a group, what is more important? Should we do the podcast or should we set up nurturing? Depending on what that answer is, that becomes the highest priority, and that becomes the focus of our next 30-day sprint. So once again, we are really looking at everything we want to do, prioritizing it, and then putting in action. Now, how do you decide the highest priority? Well, it's a lot about what is the least amount of effort and or investment that we could apply to get the highest amount of results. In our hobbyist example that's been running through our episode today, they had 20,000 visitors a month and they're wasting 19,900 of them because only 100 people a month are buying. If we implement nurturing, that feels like a lower hanging fruit exercise than starting a new podcast, which is something that's new. Not that either one is better or worse. It's just about we'll probably get faster, better response if we lean into nurturing and save our podcast for an issue for next month. And that's kind of the flavor of the conversation the revenue team should be having literally on a weekly basis to identify uh, priorities. So using a real life example, um, we have a client, they had about 20 things on their issues list, and it took us about a half an hour to go through and really talk about each one and give them a ranking of one through five. At the end of the list, three of all of those 20 things ranked five out of five. 
So that became our focus for that specific meeting. And actually only one of those three issues became an action item that we were going to do over the next month because it was pretty comprehensive. So that's just a flavor of the kind of ongoing weekly conversations your team should be having is what do we do now to get the biggest return on our investment? Yeah, I, I really especially like, and obviously I like it because that's how we try to help our clients, but I like the idea of what's going to have the biggest impact for the least amount of effort, right? That's a great way to start looking at this list and saying like, yeah, we can get this done. We can get this done quickly and it's going to have a big impact. Like those are the items that should be at the top of the list. Those are the tactics that you ought to be starting with. The other uh, filter here that I think you could consider using is which of these tactics do you actually have expertise in executing? So, you know, uh, the, the the podcast example might be a great idea. This may have be this may be at the top of your list, right? To Eric's, this may be five out of five. Like we got to do this. It's the most important thing we got to do. Everybody else has one. We need one. We have a lot to say. This is a great format, right? Whatever. But if you've never done it before, you got to discuss whether that still means it's at the top of the list because having never never done something like this before and not having the expertise to do a, a tactic that's at the top of your list means it's going to take you some time to figure it out it means your first couple of iterations are not going to be great it means you might have to consider bringing someone in who does have the expertise to help you execute this effectively if that's important to you there's nothing wrong with um running experiments with new tactics, right? I'm actually a big fan of experimenting with tactics and seeing how they uh, work and optimizing them over time, as long as you're going into it with that understanding. If, if you're expecting to hit a home run with a podcast tactic when you've never done one before, I think that's probably unrealistic. So man managing your expectations and aligning uh, expected results with your expertise and skills around a particular tactic is also going to help you understand and, and prioritize which ones of these you want to tackle and in, and in what order. And then, you know, the last thing I think we probably ought to talk about is, you know, everything needs to be measured when it comes to these tactics. And we're going to dig into this in a lot more detail when we get to the campaigns episode, which is next week. But, you know, a lot of companies run these tactics and then make an arbitrary decision about whether they're working or not. And I think that pr produces even more of this random acts of marketing. Well, we had a PR agency and we, we ran some press releases for a couple months and we don't really think we got anything, so we canceled it. Okay, fine. Well, we, we ran some email marketing campaigns for a couple months and we don't think we really got anything, so we canceled it. Okay, fine. Like, If this sounds familiar, because it probably does, because we hear this from a lot of companies, it has a lot to do with the fact that you didn't really go into any of those campaigns with any defined set of expectations around performance of which you could have measured them against those expectations. Like that email campaign actually might've been trending upwards if you were measuring it and had you let it go for another three or four months might've got you to where you were hoping it to get to because you didn't know really how it was doing. You didn't really know what to expect from it. You canceled it before it really had a chance to get its feet under itself happens a lot with tactics. I've seen a lot of uh, tactics uh, started and then canceled before they even have a chance to like uh, start to produce any kind of results. It's very rare in, in marketing that something you turn on today produces results tomorrow. It's just It just doesn't happen like that very frequently. I'm not saying it never happens, but it doesn't happen very frequently. More frequently, it's 
it got a little better this month. It got a little better the next month. Oh, it's getting even better the third month. Like there's so many things that go into executing these tactics that require you to make subtle changes or require the tools you're using to make subtle changes to your campaigns that lots of times it takes more time than you were expecting to produce the results you're looking for. So you have to have an evaluate, uh, I'm gonna, this is Eric's favorite word. You have to have an evaluatory process set up to make sure your tactics are working and you have to have the patience and the proper timing to make sure your tactics are working. You just can't be too quick to pull the plug um, when you haven't given it a chance to really um, settle in and, and, and start to work right. Yeah, event marketing is a typical example of this, right? We go to the event, we have set no expectations on what we want to do, how many leads we're going to come back with, how many customers we anticipate closing from that. Then you come back from the trade show, remember, or the conference, and remember, nobody went there with a purchase order. They're looking for information and a chat with people, and your sales team did a decent job, blah, blah, blah. And then you come back, and it's a month later, yeah, we got nothing from that event. But meanwhile, you caught people early in the buyer's journey. And if you're then nurturing them and inviting them to webinars and having conversations with them, you might take a whole year to get the full breadth of the results in. And most people are like, man, I'm not going to have any patience for that. Uh, I remember a personal example in my uh, first job out of college is at, at a direct mail company. And I placed a you mean, very- you mean back in 1944? In 1944, we were using direct mail, Mike. That's correct. Right after the, 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 the big WW2. So what happened was we placed an ad. And back then, this was uh, 1989, I'm going to say, to, to put some brackets around it. It was a $5,000 print ad. And the goal of the print ad was to obviously sell our product, but also to get names on the database. Uh, my boss was freaking out because in the third day of the month, it was a one month run for that ad. Literally, we had nothing. But if you think about it, it was a magazine. It had to go out. Someone had to open it up. Someone had to get to the page we were on. Someone had to read it. Someone had to then think about it. And they had to call the 800 number of uh, younger people listening. Please see me after class what an 800 number is. And then at the end of the month, right? He, he was still antsy about it, but then the magazine laid around and then other people shared it with their buddies. At the end of the day, we got 400 catalog requests, converted 10% of them for sales, and this is off the top of my head, at an average engagement size of 800 for $32,000 in revenue, 50% for cost of goods sold was 16,000 and the ad cost five. So it had a... Um, $11,000 profit on just that one ad, but I had to be patient for 90 days or so until it all trickled in to make some decisions. My boss, he never apologized to me. I'm still stinging from that, Mike. I can tell. I'll, I'll apologize for him. He made a mistake. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, I think it's such a good example, especially when we're talking about B2B and long sales cycles. Like, like these tactics are running today. They might not pay off for six months, right? Like someone that interacts with an ad, a paid ad you might be running or interacts with an email you might be running or visits your website today, you know, they may not get, be ready to buy for months and months and months down, down the line. And you, 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 your tactic was still effective in introducing your company to them, getting on their radar, sharing some information with them. Um, and they may come back to you if you continue the conversation in a, in a constructive way. You really got to have the long game around these particular tactics. So I think we kind of covered most of what we wanted to cover. I do have a couple of questions, Eric. Let's bang these out. 
and then we'll wrap up uh, the episode and uh, get everybody back to their uh, rest of their day. I got a question from Barry in New Jersey. I heard you talk about random acts of marketing in the past, and I'm curious if you guys have seen any marketing tactics that are actually producing significant results for a reasonable investment level. It's a good question. Well, how, how would you answer, answer Barry's question? Uh, so to clarify, a random act of marketing that actually has a high ROI? Well, he's saying instead of random acts of marketing, like what do you see, what tactics do you see that are actually producing good results? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a wide question, right? Because I think it depends a lot on the industry. If you're a, you know, one day sales cycle, different tactics should be employed than if you're a six month sales cycle, right? So if I had to say which of all the, well, website, obviously, despite our debate about the pizza shop, Mike, the website is the number one tactic that works the best. But I guess if I had to put together a, the one thing that across every, you know what, I'm going with conversion strategy. And that is a tactic to figure out how we convert anonymous website visitors into our database, nurture them by offering them content. That is the one thing across every one of our clients that works like a charm. Doesn't mean they actually buy at the rate we would like, but it does build databases, engages people, converts them. So now we know who they are. I would think a conversion strategy would be one thing I would think that works pretty much consistently across the board. How about you, Mike? Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think the nice thing about that tactic is you get a lot of data very quickly, right? You can see what people are interested in, what they're not interested in, and you can make adjustments to it. You can quickly deploy those. Uh, and and pretty aggressively scale that effort so that it does produce leads or marketing qualified leads, right? Maybe not sales opportunities, but marketing qualified leads in a relatively short amount of time. I think that's really good advice for Barry, New Jersey. All right, Tiffany and Charlotte wants to know, we spend a lot of time on marketing, but I think we should also be looking at a set of sales tactic upgrades too. Can you talk more about some of the most impactful sales tactics that your team has used to drive better results? So Besides the one we already talked about, like what, what would you have to say to Charlotte? Well, it's 2023. So if I had to pick a specific sales support tactic, aside having a obviously well-run CRM and some of the technology that helps sales uh, keep people moving, I'm going to go with video. And what do I mean by that is that if you look at uh, a recent survey, 73% of uh, Americans classify themselves as uh, visual learners, which basically means they like to watch TV more than they like to read. Understanding that video has really taken its seat at the table as a very powerful uh, delivery uh, media. Medium? Media. Yeah. Medium. 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 Right. So lots of times if there are places in the sales process that get bogged down. A good video inserted at that point with the correct content to keep them moving along really works like a charm. And in today's market where you don't need a $10,000 corporate video with the drone flying over the factory, creating little ad hoc videos becomes cheap and easy. And I think if more people breathe video content into their sales process, one, people would absorb it. And two, it would keep them moving towards the finish line, which is getting the signature on the agreement. Yeah, it's a really good idea. And I'm going to give you a practical uh, story about how we use this and actually got the deal. So uh, we were talking to a prospect in a fairly complex manufacturing industry, and they were basically looking to get marketing. They had never done any marketing. They're a hundred year old business. They had never done any marketing. Knew they needed it, 
needed a, a lot of help in a lot of different areas. And we, we were talking to them in the sales process, had some really good conversations with them, uh, presented our recommendations, and they came back to us and said, this, that was great. Thank you. And they had a series of questions, which basically went something like, if money were no object, what would you recommend we do? And we were pretty far towards the end of the sales process. So it didn't feel like another meeting with everybody was really appropriate. So we put together a short presentation and I did a video along with the presentation to kind of talk them through the slides that I put together for them and sent it over to them. So we combined the video with some uh, PowerPoint slides to help them better understand what we were trying to articulate to them and give them kind of a multimedia approach to answering their question. A week or two later, they came back and said, you guys got the deal. We can't wait to get started with you. Thank you so much for helping us. Um, and I and we've actually done this a couple of times. And honestly, it works like a charm. Eric, I don't know why we don't do it more frequently. It seems like we use it um, in, in, in um, like tricky spots. Maybe we should use it more frequently, but it does work very effectively uh, in the sales process, for sure. Well, many people have told me, Mike, that I have a face for radio. So maybe that's <laughs> not a good tactic for closing deals. Yeah, it's a good point. But Eric is right. I mean, the tools for video and sales are so easy. Like you can easily hop on Zoom, record it, send it. There's Loom, which is a video tool that you can use and it embeds right into your emails. HubSpot has a video embedding technology in their email. So I think it's a really great tactic. The other tactic, real quickly, Charlotte, uh, Tiffany and Charlotte, sorry, Tiffany, is we see so many really bad sales presentations that companies use at the end of the sales process that if you're looking to make a fix that's going to be impactful, I would take a real hard look at what some people call their pitch decks, or we call them our recommendations deck, like whatever presentation you're using at the very end of the sales process to get someone to say yes. Take a hard look at that. That should be 80% about them and 20% about you. And generally, it's completely the opposite. Yep. Had a uh, client said, Eric, take a look at my sales deck. Ni uh, 20 slides total. The first 19 slides, the history, awards they've won. You know what it said on the last slide, Mike? Hey, prospect, we can save you $1.2 million. I said, you know what? Get rid of those first 19 slides. You're good to go. Now, of course, that's a joke. But really... They don't. They didn't look at their uh, sales conversation, the story they're telling as to why they should do business from the eyes of the prospect. They really only cared about saving 1.2 million, not the awards that the company won. Don't get me wrong. There's a place in the story for validating that your company is great with awards, but it's certainly not the lead story. Yeah, and not to mention, like we said, they already know a lot about you. Like they learned about all those things about you all through the sales process, and even before they talk to a salesperson, they know about your awards. So. You know, to that point and the way people buy today, they don't need to be hit over the head about how great you are at the very end of the process. That should be all about what you're going to do for them and how you're going to help them and how they're going to, um, you know, to Eric's point, what, what their world is going to look like in 30 days, in 90 days, in six months, in, in a year. That's what that final presentation should all be about. Change that. I guarantee you'll have a much higher close rate. Agreed. Folks, thanks very much. Appreciate you joining us on the show today. Next week, uh, we're going to talk about campaigns. I know we talked about tactics today. We we teased a little bit of the campaign conversation, but orchestrating highly personalized one-to-one one -one campaigns is huge today. And uh, episode six is going to be all about that. Thanks everybody for joining. Just to remind you guys, you can check out the show on Square Two's YouTube channel, Square Two Marketing YouTube channel. We have all of our shows posted there every Thursday morning. You can like it 
subscribe, leave us comments. We really appreciate it. The show is also available on Square2 Plus, our free streaming service located at square2marketing.com backslash square2plus. The show has its own webpage at uh, What's Wrong With Revenue. It's set in the footer of the square2marketing.com website. Go check it out. You can subscribe to the show, which means we'll email you the show direct to your inbox, and we'll even let you know what upcoming shows we have planned for you. And you can also leave us questions like the ones we handled today from Barry and Tiffany, and we, Eric and I will answer them if we possibly can. Thank you very much for considering uh, the question concept. And last but not least, if you're into audio content, all of our shows are posted on all of your favorite uh, podcast platforms. Subscribe them, download them. We recently crossed over a thousand downloads of our episodes. That's pretty exciting for us. Thanks everybody who downloaded the show. Thanks everybody for joining us. Have a great uh, rest of your week. And again, we'll uh, talk to you next week. Take care.